0: Well, kia ora and welcome to Ahun for the week that was, for the week's end on the kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey and I'm joined in the parliamentary studio here by Max Rashbook. Max, welcome in. Thank you. Max um, is uh, an associate with the Institute for Policy Studies at Victoria University and has written a book, so to speak, on um, on inequality and is a researcher in this area of uh Lots of work and is continuing to do work and writing another book. And um, we really appreciate you coming in today, Max. Fantastic. Pleased to be here. To join the, the roster of uh, people doing hoons on the kaka. Uh, we've had in the last couple of weeks some really interesting numbers from the Treasury and some talk from the Treasury about the government's finances and debt. Just in the last couple of days, we've seen the numbers for the first 11 months of the year to End of June, so just one more month left in the financial year. And the budget deficit is, drumroll, less than 4 billion, less than half what was expected in May. Remember, that's like six weeks ago. <laughs> that's amazing. And that's because the economy is going so strongly. The tax revenue from GST and uh, PAYE is flooding into the accounts. Because we've got such a good system for taxing people, uh, taxing their income and their spending, not their wealth, but their income and their spending. And uh, it looks like at this rate, you know, we'll be close to surplus again within a couple of years, which no one was really talking about, even back in May, and certainly not in May last year, when people were talking about deficits out into the the never-never land and uh, debt hitting well over 50% of GDP in net terms. But... In the last week, we've seen, A, the budget position look much stronger, and B, the Treasury Secretary, Caroline McLeish, has come out and started talking about how debt levels of above 50 to 60 percent are actually quite sustainable at the moment because interest rates are so low and because the markets are very open. And she started to do something really interesting, I think. She started to pull the debate away uh, about debt and using the government's balance sheet, away from uh, something you do in an emergency that you have to do and then you quickly get back into surplus to, hey, maybe we've got some long-term problems here that we could use our balance sheet to try and solve. I mean, just looking at this budget picture and the debate around the budget, um, how do you think the government is um, preparing the ground or viewing the world and if it's changing?
1: Um, I think it's doing its usual thing of shifting very very slowly and cautiously and not frightening the horses but you know maybe getting to a more intelligent position um i mean we have been we have been incredibly sort of phobic about debt in this country for a long time um and the the government has really bought into that and because it's been scarred um you know it's you you i mean and and i've told the story in columns You know, people who were doing focus groups sort of under Andrew Little for the Labour Party just got the public saying, ah, you guys spent all the money, terrible, can't trust you with the economy. And you point out this isn't true, and people just say, no, no, but I know you spent all the money. You know, and it's just, it's very, that sort of thing has been very scarring for Labour, I think. And so they've had this obsession with, you know, keeping a lid on public debt as much as possible. And it's got us into this very strange position where, you know, Labour and National have spent a long time fighting over, well, you know, would you get debt down to 47% of GDP or 45% of GDP? And would you achieve it by 27, 28 or 28, 29? I mean, stuff that is ridiculous in the bigger picture when, you know, you've got major world countries managing perfectly happy with debt at, you know, 80, 90, 100% of GDP. Um, so I think it's good to see that conversation starting to shift, you know, as Caroline Mcleish signalled, to, to a conversation that's not about sort of the absolute amount of debt, you know, which a, a lot of, and a lot, because a lot of that discussion is quite pointless anyway. I mean, the argument is you need to get debt down so that you sort of, you know, you can then increase it in a crisis, right? So you've got, you know, so you've got a bit of insurance. But you don't get any meaningful insurance against a crisis, having debt at, you know, 42% of GDP rather than 47% of
0: GDP. I mean, these these distinctions are meaningless. Particularly in a global financial markets where we have a massive surplus of savings, a glut of savings, where wealthy people who are now significantly wealthier, particularly older people, they have very little appetite for risk. Their main focus is wealth preservation. Hmm. Now, they are the ones who are holding on to the cash because they sold their bonds to a central bank in <laughs> Europe or the United States. And they're looking around the world going, not let's invest in a risky startup and maybe lose it all. They're thinking, let's invest in another government bond somewhere. And so they're looking at places like New Zealand, um, where New Zealand has a relatively strong growing economy, a relatively young economy that is still growing. And uh, some remotely competent leadership uh, who appear to be um, sane, and <laughs> sane, and, and um, reasonably humane, and that is, um, you know, that's a that's an opportunity, not a threat, certainly at the moment. And also, um, you have got to remember that the Reserve Bank is still buying government bonds at a rate of two hundred million dollars a week, and the government actually has forty billion dollars in cash in its settlement account. And so it's it's quite strange to hear ministers make announcements like they have in the last month or so. Um, they cancelled the big roads out at Mill, Mill Road in South Auckland, the ones in Tauranga. Uh, there have been various uh, moves to cut back on spending, delay spending, for, for example, our defence spending package with buying lots of frigates and planes. There's talk that that multi-billion-dollar plan could be delayed out because, in theory, you know, times are tough, it's COVID. Well, actually, uh, in a way, because times are tough, it's really easy to to raise money in bond markets at very low interest rates, our 10-year government bond yield at 1.7%. And I think what's happening here is, you're right, there is this incremental shift in the language around using debt and using the balance sheet towards something, I think, next year or 2023, when the ground is being prepared by Grant Robertson to say, hey, Things are different to when they were in 1989, when we set up the Public Finance Act, which for those people um, who maybe not uh, have, have read all of Hansard for the last 100 years, uh, fair enough too, uh, aren't aware that the Public Finance Act is really the the spine of how the government operates. What it says is, when you're running government, you have to be responsible for the finances. Fair enough. That's a bit like apple pie is nice. But more importantly, they say that you have to uh, be prudent about managing your debt, and that you have to get it back down to virtually nothing. That that should be your aim after a crisis is to bend the curve back down to virtually nothing. And in bond market terms, that's about twenty percent of debt, twenty uh, percent of GDP in net debt. However, um, that was a rule, 1989, set when the bond vigilantes ruled the world. And uh, one of this is, I I find this fascinating that our current crop of centre-left politicians in New Zealand, and to an extent still in Britain, and certainly in Australia, adhere to what I call the number one priority of the third way. So this is the the Blairite, Clintonite way of being a centre-left politician, which is before you do anything else make sure you have convinced the financial markets and those median voters in the focus groups that you are financially sound, that you care about interest rates, that you are afraid of the financial market's power to stop you from spending. And in 1989, 1990, 1991, when Blair and Clinton were trying to win power, you did need to do that because the bond vigilantes were a real thing. They could gang up on a government and force its interest rates higher and cause all sorts of grief. And back in the late 80s, um, New Zealand was in a position where its government was borrowing in foreign currencies with floating interest rates. Now, that means when you've got a fixed currency, fixed currency exchange rate, if there's some shock, let's say there's some export shock and New Zealand foot and mouth or, or whatever it is, and New Zealand's currency falls and your interest rates rise, which we saw quite a lot during the 70s and 80s, then suddenly the cost of servicing your debt explodes. Because not only do you have a higher interest rate to pay, but in New Zealand dollar terms, you have to pay a lot more to service the interest on that. And that's why the 1989 Public Finance Act is so paranoid about getting the debt down, getting it under control, because it's an explosive thing that could go off on our face at any moment. But what the Public Finance Act doesn't realise Or, or, I mean, it was done before this change, so fair enough. It should be reformed properly, not like the little tweak that it got a couple of years ago, which says, you know what, the bond vigilantes are dead. The people who are in the bond markets now are desperate for some bonds to buy, and they'll pay incredibly low interest rates to the point where a couple of weeks ago, you'll appreciate this, um, Max, the Greek government was able to issue five-year bonds with a negative interest rate. (laughs) And, um, you know, Europe is particularly um, keen on negative interest rates and has a particular problem with uh, a savings glut because of its ageing population, all those Germans being extremely careful. And what it means is that in a a post-savings glut world, the Public Finance Act doesn't have that same incentive or there isn't that same need to be so afraid because remember now New Zealand issues government bonds in New Zealand dollar terms with a fixed interest rate so for those who don't understand the bond markets when you, intre- you release a f- when you borrow money with a fixed interest security what you essentially say is here's this bit of paper I will pay you an interest rate of 2.5% every year on this $1 million bond and um, currently, I see that the interest rates in the markets are 2.9%. What that means means is I'm going to borrow, instead of borrowing a million dollars from you, I'm going to borrow $932,000 from you. And that gap effectively makes up for the difference between the coupon, the fixed interest rate that I'm uh, paying you from the bond, and what the current interest rate is. What it essentially does is it transfers the risk of interest rate movements from the borrower, the government, to the lender, the pension fund. And if that pension fund is overseas, because it's a New Zealand dollar fixed interest security, they're taking the exchange rate risk as well. So the risk of this thing blowing up in our faces is much lower than it was in 1989. Or in 1991, when I understand Ruth Richardson and Graham Scott flew to New York to beg Standard & Poor's not to cut their credit rating by two notches, and um, promised to, to do very serious things to get the budget back into surplus, and then we had the mother of all budgets and those benefit cuts, which have changed New Zealand fundamentally. So um, it would be good to see the debate around debt and the debt track and the Public Finance Act acknowledge that the world's changed somewhat, um, because it, it really does matter. Tell us, I mean, for example, yesterday, Thursday, the 1st of July, we got a $20 a week benefit increase. And I'm, I'm interested, and I've done some uh, reporting this week on how different parts of New Zealand have done out of COVID, and just because you watch very closely the um, the welfare system and how it performs and what people are paid, tell us some um, your perception of how people who are on benefits or on low precarious incomes have done through COVID versus you know, others who may have owned a property and may have a more stable long term job.
1: Well, it's an it's an interesting question, and actually, just just to uh, revert briefly. Your comments about the bond markets reminded me there was a quote, and I forget his name, from one of Bill Clinton's advisors oh, yes. who said, "You know, if if I get reincarnated, I'd like to come back as the bond
0: market." Yes, James but, ca- James Carville, the James raging Carville. Cajun. Yeah.
1: Yes, yes, yes. So I could just go around intimidating everyone. Um, <laughs> and as you say, you know, things have changed hugely on that front. And but another way that things have changed hugely, of course, is you talk about the 1991 mother of all budgets. You know, big cuts to benefits. Um, you know, 20%, roughly speaking, across a whole, whole range of benefits. Well, you know, And the government quite rightly made a big plan in the last budget as saying, well, we've unwound those. You know, we have now undone that damage in, in sort of in percentage terms. You know, benefits are now higher than they were before Ruth Richardson cut them. Is that
0: really in- adjusted for wage inflation or just for CPI inflation?
1: Just for CPI inflation, uh, yeah. Okay. So the issue they have, but I think th- I think it's for me I'm am I'm a very much a glass half empty sorry glass half full person I think that's good yeah the problem is that wages have increased so much mm. in that time that they certainly have not restored benefits to
0: their relationship
1: with the average wage that they had in 1991. Um, and if those
0: people on benefits have been over the age of 65, they they would have been. A, a, a lot of protest about that adjustment process being CPI-based rather than wage-based yep. because our yep. pensions are indexed to wages, not yes. inflation. And luckily yep. now, the, um, the benefits are indexed yes. to wages, finally, because but we, we haven't are. had yep. that catch-up from 1991 no. to 2021. No. So there's a lot of catch-up to be done.
1: Some of that you can do through increased working for families payments, and that's the an next cab off the rank. Um, because, you know, and again, glass half full thing, the government made a big play of saying, hey, well, we've done what the Welfare Expert Advisory Group wanted us to do. We've raised benefits about as much as they said. And it is worth remembering, I mean, the the core, you know, job seeker support, thanks to all the changes that the government has made, not just the most recent ones, is about something like $90 higher than it was when they came to power. Now, that is not nothing. Um, So they've done that. But what the Welfare Expert Advisory Group also said is you need to also raise working for families payments very significantly because you've got some families who are $350 a week short of what they need to be out of poverty. But the government has said, well, okay, we are going to review working for families. And actually increasing those payments is much easier politically than increasing benefits,
0: so it's credible. Because they're hard-working families. That's
1: right. And doesn't everyone love hard-working families?
0: Which is code for... Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. although, although, I mean, again, it's quite clever packaging because the reality of working for families, and people forget this, is actually a good chunk of it goes to beneficiaries, you know, because it's not all limited. The in-work tax credit is obviously only for working families, but the family tax credit, which is a lot of money, does go to beneficiary families as well. So it's actually quite a clever way to increase incomes for beneficiary families while looking like that's not what you're doing.
0: And there is a review underway right now of working for families. And and you'd have to expect that in next year's budget or in the 2023 budget, there will be a significant new burst of spending through that... um, through those tax credit systems and, in theory, accommodation supplement, which which is due for a top-up as well.
1: Yeah, they've wrapped that into the Working for Families um, review, although, I mean, good luck to them
0: because accommodation supplement is a nightmare, uh, for which there are no obvious fixes, unfortunately. Well, this is interesting. So now we're getting into the area of housing and housing costs, which... um, uh, I know you're a, a glass half full guy, but I'm the glass half empty guy. <laughs> and uh, I did a little analysis this week, given the latest figures from CoreLogic on the housing market to the end of June, and also you know with the July one benefit increases, um, it's worth doing a you know a year on from COVID. How was the economy shaping up, and how is how have, how have people done during COVID? And on the face of it. You know, our economy has done stonkingly well compared to what we were expecting uh, back in um, March, April, May of last year. Unemployment, 4.7%. That is astonishing. And what anyone would describe as the biggest economic shock we in the, the whole world has had since the Second World War. Uh, you know, we're looking at um, spending growth, quite robust. And um, employment growth to the point now where we actually have more people employed now than we did before COVID hit, which is just amazing, really. And uh, our our full GDP is not quite back to where it was pre-COVID, but we certainly will get there by the end of June. And, you know, to the point now where people are saying the economy is going so strong and there are so many labour shortages and capacity issues in the economy that the Reserve Bank should look to start putting up interest rates as soon as November. Oh, my goodness. You know, just six months ago, we were talking about no rate hikes until 2024. And currently, the formal Reserve Bank forecast is that it won't have to put up interest rates till midway through next year. Mind you, those forecasts are looking a bit out of date now, four or five weeks old. And since then, we've had very good GDP numbers, very good consumer spending numbers. And of course, the housing market is still going gangbusters, despite what the government has done. And so I looked at it and thought, right, okay, how have we done since COVID? And not just in an income sense, but also in a wealth sense, because unlike any other recovery and any other government response to a shock, the wealth effect has been a tool. It has been a deliberate plan by the world's uh, Western economies and their central banks, because interest rates have been cut to zero before we got to the crisis, where they had no other lever to pull than quantitative easing, which is creating money out of nowhere and using it to buy government bonds to push down longer term interest rates. Uh, Because that's been the playbook for about 10 years uh, with the US Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank and Bank of Japan. And New Zealand and Australia got on on the act this time around, and we're still just over halfway through a plan to buy $100 billion worth of government bonds that the Reserve Bank has. It did have the effect of supporting the economy through the wealth effect, And remember, in New Zealand, that's, you know, more than 60% of households own their own homes, and probably a couple others as well, and therefore they're feeling wealthy. And let's see how much wealthier. Well, we got some numbers from CoreLogic this week showing that the overall housing market uh, has risen uh, by uh, 22% to $1.5 trillion. So overall, the, the, the wealth tied up in the housing market has risen by much more than $300 billion. Now, to be fair, there's been some people who have taken on some extra debt there to buy a few other houses and maybe buy some new houses. But when you look at the actual effect on property owners and people who own shares in New Zealand, net, they are better off to the tune of $308 billion since the beginning of COVID and in large part because of um, actions taken by governments around the world, but also here and most of it here, because that's what's happened to the housing market. If you look at the number of people who are in those households that own property and assets, they're around, on average, $92,000 a week better. Sorry, $92,000 in total, better off per person. But of course, those people who don't own property, renters, and in many cases that's poorer families, young people, students, migrants or people on temporary work visas, and of course, the unemployed, mostly, uh, they saw a $25 a week increase in their benefit uh, from, I think, April 1 last year. And again, another $20 just yesterday. Plus, there was a doubling of the winter energy payment, um, which combined increased the incomes of those households on benefits by around $2,600 for the year. So we've got $2,600 extra from the state versus $92,000 for property owners. So that doesn't seem fair. But then, of course, you've got to take into account that rents have risen substantially. So the average rent is up about $50 to $500 a week. And so when you take that into account, all of the money, the extra money that came from the government was eaten up by rent, let alone other increased costs, or the fact that many of those people, particularly people with multiple jobs, precarious jobs, have lost some of those jobs. Now, they might have received uh, some period of unemployment benefit, and um, that maybe they wouldn't have lost so many jobs if the government hadn't um, paid businesses $14 billion in cash, but that's what happened. And now we're at a point where those who own assets and small businesses and large businesses are effectively at least $300 billion better off, their bank accounts are up by $20 billion in cash stuck in bank accounts by people who own assets, including about $10 billion extra in uh, business accounts, which you'd have to say a good $10 billion of that is from the wage subsidy, which hasn't been repaid. And that'll be another interesting topic. One of the interesting little factoids that came out this week was an attempt by a wealthy uh, individual to sue MSD for not chasing up the money that hasn't been paid back, and there are, you know, we're learning all, every day about companies that haven't paid back money, including out of Queenstown, where the um, uh, the company that runs the gondola to the top, uh, they haven't paid back and made a profit of seventy million dollars this year. Uh, Briscoe's there was a big um, kerfuffle, and they did pay it back, but there are others. Fulton Hogan hasn't paid it all back, and the likes of Harvey Norman. Uh, go, Harvey Norman, and pay that money back. They haven't paid it back. They didn't do it in Australia either. So, you know, it has been a real K-shaped recovery. Some people have done very well out of this, and they did very well because of government actions. They were already rich, and now they're stonkingly richer. Whereas in New Zealand, because there weren't the same large cash payouts to people that we saw in America and Australia, those people on lower incomes, those without property, have not had a great COVID. Um, Now, it could have been a lot worse, but... It hasn't been great. And I think, I wonder if there will be a time when there's a bit of a reckoning where people go, you know what, it's not fair that a government has made rich people much richer and they didn't help me much. So I'm wondering, in the sort of political economy sense, whether there will be a fallout for that, whether there will be a reckoning.
1: Yeah, interesting question. I mean, on a slightly more um, sort of, you know, policy wonk, Thing. I mean I, I do think there will have to be a reckoning in the sense of actually evaluating what happened and one of my worries is that we won't do that evaluation because you know the health response to COVID is getting raked over the multiple inquiries will there be a proper review of the economic performance of our choices which and the choices that we made as you point out were very different to those made overseas you know I mean Australia doubled the rate of its core benefit you know automatically Which is extraordinary—a conservative administration. You know, the the Americans gave out direct cash payments to you know vast, virtually all families. You know, and tapering off at the top end, it wasn't quite a universal grant, very
0: close to it. And a good chunk of that was Trump. Yeah, we shouldn't forget that. And and also, um, when you look at the immediate impacts of those cash injections from the government to everyone, in particular to those people on low incomes, the expectation is that it will halve child poverty.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, huge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mind you, we're also, I mean, the government is on, mostly speaking, on track to halve child poverty in New Zealand as well, over 10 years. I mean, it's been beavering away at that. And actually, you know, it's, it's already had some, I mean, pre-COVID, we'll have to see what the post-COVID numbers are like, but pre-COVID, you know, they would listed, well, it depends what measure you use, 15, 20, 30,000 kids out of poverty, those are real achievements. And it's it's very hard to reduce child poverty rates. I mean, there are very few policy initiatives, working for families is one of the few that has ever reduced, you know, child poverty substantially. Um, so I think, you know, and their projections are that the increases in the budget will lift, you know, another thirty, 000, forty thousand kids out of poverty. Um, and I do and I do think you have to take those measures seriously because and some of them are after housing costs, you know. So they're actually, they are chipping away at things.
0: Um, I'd quite like them to take an axe to it with that $40 billion in cash they've got in an, an account and a balance sheet which even their own Treasury Secretary says is is the strongest thing ever and could be used to solve some of these problems. Not, I mean, not all of these things can be solved quickly. You can't just build houses overnight. But you can hand back cash overnight. Yeah,
1: yeah it's one of the things. And given that we have a government that does have problems with delivery, mm. famously, the one thing yeah could easily do more of is just, you know, pressing some buttons and getting more cash out the door. I mean, there, there's no real world constraints on that action. It's purely political. You know, they're just going very carefully. They're trying to warm up Middle New Zealand to the idea of spending. Every time they do it and it seems to work a bit, they think, OK, maybe we can do a bit more. Um, but, yeah, but they're not really willing to go there boldly on it. Will there be a reckoning on how they've handled the crisis? Well, I mean, I think, you know, because the health response was so good, they will get away with an awful lot of things is the reality. I'm also a little bit more, it's so complicated, right, because, you know, the the same policies that have pumped up house prices, you know, as you've indicated, have helped keep people in jobs, you know, and that's huge in terms of reducing inequality. And I think the Reserve Bank, is right to say, well, you look at all the international studies that have been done about these kinds of responses, it's actually pretty unclear as to whether they worsen inequality overall. I mean, they you definitely say, pump up wealth inequality. <laughs> yeah. But what about, what about the inequality that is, you know, done away with by keeping people in jobs when otherwise they would have been flung, you know, on... And, and we know about the long-term scarring of becoming unemployed is always huge, and it's particularly bad in New Zealand, you know, the work that Motu have done on that, you know, five years later after becoming unemployed, people's incomes are still, you know, in the region of a fifth lower than they were before they lost their job. Really long-term scarring. The, the benefits of being able to keep those people in their jobs are really significant. I'm not saying they make everything all right. I basically agree with a lot of your analysis. We should have done a lot more with fiscal policy, with spending, with putting cash in people's hands. I just think the response we had is a bit more understandable, maybe. Than is, than, is, than is being argued because people are rightly furious about what's happened in the housing market. But I would also say on that, you know, the, the $300 billion that homeowners are better off, how much of that is down to looser monetary policy? How much of that would have happened anyway because we have a crazy housing market that's constrained by supply?
0: Yeah, uh, and you could argue what else could the Reserve Bank have done? And it threw everything at it and it worked. Uh, um, so, you know, and... 60% of the population is certainly a much wider way to apply a wealth effect than, say, in America, where the wealth effect mostly came through, at least initially, the stock market, which is closer to 10% of the population who benefit most from that. Although it's interesting, they're now seeing a big rising housing market too.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, in New Zealand, I think the, the analysis that David Parker got his officials to do showed that the wealthiest 1% of New Zealand own owned 70% of shares, you yeah. know, that's direct ownership that's mm. not taking into account KiwiSaver and things so yes yeah, so those effects are hugely concentrated. It also gets really complicated I mean you, you're absolutely right about rents rising but when you're trying to think about how people have done through COVID well I mean a lot of New Zealand's poorest people are in housing New Zealand houses you know there's 70,000 houses so they're housing what 150,000 200,000 people those people haven't seen their rents go up you know vastly I mean they're on income related rents so they're Rents don't rise any more than their, their incomes do. So they will have been spared a lot of those effects you're talking about. And to actually to see how that all washes out, we'll, we'll actually have to see you know what the figures that we get next year tell us about how that's all played yeah, out. Yeah,
0: I, I think there will be a reckoning, but it'll take a couple of years. And it'll happen around the world. And uh, I hope it's not um, too ugly. Speaking of things that can be done in the longer term. The other news that came out this week um, for uh, policy wonks in the political economy (laughs) like you and me is uh, the government came out with its first exposure draft of the Resource Management Act repeal and replace process. So this is the first time we get actual bits of paper with clauses and people can start to put their glasses on and have a really good look what does this mean when they say this, and this word, what does that mean? What would a High Court judge think of that word? <laughs> you know? And uh, it's good to see David Parker, who I have to say is one of those powerhouses in the Cabinet who thinks big and tries to achieve big things and knows how the machinery of government works and how the law, law changes matter. And uh, this would be a big law change if it goes through because they're replacing the Resource Management Act with three new acts. It's a three-for-one three special. <laughs> and you get, firstly, a uh, Natural and Built Environments Act. That's the first one that we've seen the exposure draft for. Secondly, you get a Strategic Planning Act. And then thirdly, and it doesn't look like this will go through in the current term, is a Climate Change Adaptation Act. And the idea is that there would be a national policy framework Uh, sorry national planning framework which we'd all look at and look at the spatial plans all together and go okay in between Hamilton and Tauranga, we need to use a much bigger railway system that works better with these roads and would work together to create these new suburbs or we decide for climate change purposes that we're going to have all of our uh, housing concentration in this place around this train station or, or whatever it is so you get a much more integrated planning approach and uh, the idea is, of course, that uh, you move away from 67 uh, consenting authorities to you know some, something like 10 or 11. They've talked about 14 new um, uh, councils um, sorry, 14 new district plans instead of the larger, much larger number that we have now. And um, certainly it's the start of the process, uh, and it's good to see. The other big news we got this week was, much more detail on the three waters reforms from Nanaia Mahuta. This is, again, consolidating down 67 water authorities into four, including having Auckland look after Auckland North, all of Auckland North, and then basically having um, two authorities on either side of the North Island and the one uh, that governs Wellington also jumping across the Cook Strait and doing the top of the South Island, In fact, it looks like there's one particular area in the top of the South Island, which isn't two authorities, which, oh, who was thinking that when they drew the line on the map? But anyway, and then the rest of it's the South Island. So it all seems to, you know, 67 water authorities, that seems like a waste of um, bureaucracy and head offices. But um, the problem for New Zealand is that we have a scattered, long, stringy population, and the pipes, you know... The pipes in Whangarei are nowhere near the pipes in South Auckland. You know, There's no way you can have the water transfer from Whangarei to Auckland without some enormous amount of planning. And uh, I think this is shaping up to be a, a difficult battle between the government and councils who are under stress. They've had a tough COVID. They, um, uh, uh, they do make money from rates, but a lot of the other money they make from all sorts of parking fees and um, uh, parking buildings and um, consenting costs and those sorts of things, there was a big drop in that income during COVID. And um, some of them have cut back on spending, particularly on public transport and other areas, which, of course, is the last thing we need as we head into uh, um, trying to get our carbon emissions down. And uh, I, I just wonder whether the government now has DHB reform, RMA reform, Three Waters reform, local government reform. Uh, I'm just trying to think. There's another big, another big one around. Polytechnics. Polytechnics, that's, that's right. And today we've seen an announcement from David Parker that he's going to throw in a quick review <laughs> to fisheries fisheries employment uh, and you know whether we're using too many uh, cheap migrant workers. Dosvidanya. Um, uh, so so I, I just wonder whether the government's I mean, they've, it's unusual they, this is the first government post-MNP to have a majority in Parliament, and in theory it's all-powerful. So I just wonder if they've bitten off more than they can chew and they're about to get a blowback from somewhere.
1: Well, I, I certainly think, I mean, they, there's been a big shift just in the last year or so, I suppose, since they've been re-elected towards really big-picture reform, but it's machinery of government reform. And that stuff is difficult and complicated, and it chews up all your time and energy. And there's pretty good evidence internationally that after a major public sector restructure, it takes staff about three years to recover their previous levels of productivity. Wow. So this this is going to be very disruptive, and I am sceptical that it's necessary um, across the board. I mean, I don't think it will be that difficult for them politically. I mean... There's not that much fuss about DHBs going, they've managed to wear any fuss from amalgamating all of New Zealand's politics basically into one giant beast. Local councils aren't greatly loved in New Zealand, I don't think. They're widely perceived as not being hugely competent, I think. Um, so I don't know if it'll prove difficult for the government in that sense. I just worry that you know, there's there's no magic sort of solution about where you deliver services. And it's always and it's if you you know, spend any time looking at public policy, it's this very frustrating history of just things being centralized and then being decentralized <laughs> and then being recentralized.
0: And it's not and just government that does this, big companies do this all yeah, the time too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely,
1: absolutely. I mean like with the with the health reform, you know, everything's sort of gonna be hugely centralized, but you're then sort of gonna to have to have really good sort of delivery, you're going to have all health services on the ground. So there's going to be all these sort of, you know, 100 odd sort of little units that are actually determining how you get it gets delivered on the ground. And then there's also still going to be a regional level at which the health system operates. So it, what you're going to have achieved
0: for all of this is not clear.
1: Um, and what you're going to
0: achieve is a lot of money for PwC, Ernst & <laughs> KPMG and a Boston Consulting Group. And if McKinsey get in there, you know, boy, there's going to be some money spent. They're the ones who are going to be thrilled because every time there's a restructure, they're the one who clip the ticket.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's all time that you can't spend actually, you know, Doing work, stuff. working yeah. on service delivery in the short term. I mean, I'm not against all of these restructures by any means, but I'm worried about the, the trend. The one good thing I did pick out of the, the RMA exposure Draft of what's going to be called the N.B.A. Um, is that it's talking about you know setting absolute limits on things, you know, hard limits on pollutants, for instance, and that does seem to me, you know, we were talking earlier about you know sort of fundamental political shifts since the eighties, you know, and the the R.M.A. is very much in that sort of you know nascent environmentalist mode of oh well we've got to balance these things off each other, you know, the environment and the economy what it looks like this new legislation reflects is a subtly different but different view that says, no, the environment is the bottom line. It's the first thing. You've got to protect that. Above that, sure, you can have all sorts of economic activity. And, you know, above your bottom line, you can trade off some bits of environmental whatever for some economic whatever, but only when you've taken care of the things that we know are essential for planetary health. So that potentially, if they can follow through, and if that is actually how it's implemented, that could be a big
0: positive shift. Yes, there will be tensions there because sometimes there is a trade-off between the environment and housing. And uh, which do you look after first, the planet or people who are getting chest infections in winters because they don't have the right housing and they're incredibly stressed because it's unaffordable?
1: Yeah, although how much of that, I sort of almost feel a bit sorry for the poor old RMA, you know, <laughs> which was set up, You know, to do something really important, and it was groundbreaking in its time, I totally get, I mean, I'm not averse to reforming it, because I get the point about how slow its consenting processes were. But at the same time, I think, well, I mean, house building in Auckland now seems to be going great guns, thanks to the unitary plan, which was passed under the RMA. Wellington's just passed an improved spatial plan, while we still have the RMA. I mean, I feel like the bigger problem is one that you've pointed to often, but around the entrenched power of homeowners and their much greater influence in the democratic process, which winds back to economic inequality and marginalisation and all those sorts of things. I, that that's the bit of the story that bothers me a lot more. I think we could have a reformed RMA and you know, an MBA that does protect the environment and you know ensures that there's greater house building because we build up rather than, yes. than out. I mean, I yeah. can't see a, a good NBA getting in the way of that.
0: Yes, and those same forces there of uh, NIMBYism and and uh, of homeowners controlling councils will always be there. And uh, I, I think you're right. It does get an unfair rap sometimes. I also think that um, to be really successful, the, M, the, the, the RMA reform has to do two or three other things which are actually separate from this process, resolve some big issues before... Uh, the RMA gets through, there's some time, which is, A, to deal with this, these budget constraints, these artificial and, in my view, really constraining budget constraints, both from a central government point of view, uh, which we talked about earlier with the net debt tracks, and maybe the government's shifting there, but also councils who um, are limited by the local government funding agencies rules about debt, again, Formed in the fires of 1989 under the threat of bond vigilantes, who aren't there anymore. And (laughs) so much so that the Reserve Bank of New Zealand is crying out to get some local government debt and can't because they are also, um, you know, in their councils worried about putting up debt. In part, and this is an interesting new influence on the political economy, um, in part because, you know, there are a lot of homeowners who do have a lot of debt. And of course, if the government puts up its debt, there could be a corresponding slight increase in interest rates. That's how it works, in theory. Uh, and um, that's one of the reasons why you try to avoid having too much debt, that you don't want to crowd out um, the precious savings uh, that are limited, apparently, uh, and, and therefore have higher interest rates. Although, as we know, with the savings glut we have around the world, that's not, not an issue. Uh, so uh, there's that, plus um, the government needs to... Sort out its uh, treaty issues because, and water in particular, how can you really have an RMA reform? you still are working on this fundamental issue of who controls water. Now, who owns water has been parked to the side, but you know the the um, uh, the power companies that were partially privatised still haven't come to agreements with iwi on on water authority rights. And all around the country, you know, rightly, a whole bunch of iwi are going, hang on a minute, you're still polluting this this water. Um, it is hurting all of us, and I want to say that, and too freaking right. Uh, so I, I, and this has been creaking on forever, under both national and labor, this issue of um, coming to some solution on on water. Some people have talked about it being a, you know, sea lord of water or, or whatever that. conclusion is but we're not there yet and there's a lot of forces stopping it from happening and having an RMA reform that's meaningful will be difficult without sorting out that water issue and then of course there's local government financing reform uh, because it's going to be difficult to get the incentives right for councils if they believe that growth is actually going to hurt them because uh, they have to spend a lot of money on infrastructure and the government gets all the benefits and GST and income receipts. And that's still a couple of years away, local government reform. So some big issues there. Um, you mentioned dwelling consents, and I, w- I wanted to leap back on that because I love a good dwelling consent conversation. And you you tweeted a very good chart out this week on uh, on consents. You know, the country is you know full of red cones everywhere, orange-red cones, and and everyone's saying, oh, we can't build any more than this. We're going as fast as we possibly can. You know, um, uh, we're the little engine that could um, house-building. <laughs> But you, you, you pointed out some nice context there. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so um, the, the stats put out a press release um, saying, you know, we just had a record level of um, building concerns, I think 43,000 um, for the last year, um, highest ever. And the graph of them is it looks like it's a very uh, sharp, woodly rising line, uh, very sharply rising line upwards. Um, which, you know, um, to be fair to the previous government, that starts in about 2011. You know, it starts rising pretty rapidly from that point and that's continued under this government, it's maybe accelerating a little bit. Um, And that's great, but, um, you know, of course, you you have to look at housing number of houses built in the context of how many people there are in the country and what the need is. And so when you do the housing consents on a sort of per 1,000 people basis... It still looks reasonably good, like it's, you know, it's, it's getting to be the highest point it has been in 40 years, but we're still way off the, the peak in the early 70s in terms of how many houses we built per head of population.
0: And through the late 40s, 50s and 60s, we had a significantly higher plateau of house building consents per thousand population. And so, you know, we've lost the habit of being really good house, house builders. And I still think there's a lot of reform that has to happen in that sector to be able to really pump them out, pump them out good and and more affordably and at scale and at pace that we used to be able to do. To be fair, they were also houses that you shivered at, in, in night, at night and they probably, the pipes went straight out onto the ground and, you know, it wasn't great. But um, we, were, we were good at building them. Uh, just just to, to wrap up here, um, Max, I didn't mention, and of course you are a columnist for Stuff, uh, once every couple of weeks on a Friday in the Dominion Post, but uh, also in other newspapers and, of course, on the website. Tell us what you've um, had a look at uh, this, this week, you know, away from the area of um, purely political economy.
1: Yeah, so this week, um, like a number of other people, I stuck my oar in on the proposed hate speech um, reforms. And um, my take on that is I'm broadly supportive of, of the intent because, you know, I do think that hate speech creates real harm. Um, it creates an atmosphere in which some people feel unsafe. They feel like they are second-class citizens in the public sphere. They don't feel like they have all the rights and protections um, and liberties that other people do, and that's profoundly wrong and that's very corrosive. Um, so I think do, you do have to take hate speech seriously, and we already have laws about it. So this isn't actually about bringing in anything new. It's about just about adjusting the balance between free expression and cracking down on hate speech. I think the intent is right, but um, it's not news to anyone who's been following. The news that the government hasn't done a very good job of explaining it. And most worryingly, they've been pretty unclear on what might or might not constitute hate speech under their proposed reforms. And I think they need to do a bit of regrouping. Um, they need to think harder about the proposals. They need to be really clearer about what they're covering. And they need to be honest about what's going on. I mean, these these aren't just proposals to stop the incitement of you know, direct violence against people, as I think the Prime Minister tried to imply in some of her media interviews. It is aimed at that wider sort of creation of an atmosphere of hate. Um, so I think and, and and I'm worried about, you know, the debate's already got quite polarized. There's been some there's been some bad faith attacks, but there's also just been a lot of room created for misunderstanding because the government hasn't, I think, thought through its approach clearly enough. So I think I do think they should Keep going. I would hate to see them derailed on this, but they need to think more carefully, be clear about what they're trying to achieve.
0: Yeah, just on occasion, um, the government will roll out a policy, and it hasn't been, you know, a very smooth process. And sometimes, you know, their biggest asset, of course, is the prime minister's ability to communicate clearly and to be heard and to cut through. And she doesn't always do the heavy communications work on all these other policies. She's understandably focused on COVID and, you know, the bigger picture of, you know, just running the government. But some of these reforms, um, Three Waters, RMA, some of her ministers uh, are very um, competent and experienced and able to get these things across. And I'm thinking in particular of David Parker. And Anaya Mahuta has done a pretty good job in local government and in foreign affairs, at getting things across in a nuanced way, uh, but the whole hate speech stuff, um, the migration uh, uh, um, reform process has been halting and um, haphazard. I think would be one way to describe it, and I think there's there's some room room for improvement there, um, and. That was the first time I used the word COVID in almost an hour of discussion about the economy. That's some sort of a record. And just before we leave, um, it looks like uh, Scott Morrison has done a Singapore and in the last day or so has started talking about opening up Australia um, and not trying to completely suppress COVID, i.e. learning to live with it, which is fine if you're 90% vaccinated, but, you know, they're like 8% vaccinated. <laughs> And he has seemed to be talking about, you know, once we get to this threshold of 15%, you know, then we can have a few more people in. Meanwhile, he's talked about halving the number of entrants into Australia. They were already significantly lower than us per head of population. And uh, it's not clear yet from, and we're recording this on Friday afternoon, we haven't heard back from the Prime Minister on what she thinks of this, because in theory, how can we have a, a real bubble with Australia when Australia is not adopting the same suppression strategy that we are? Uh, Or are we going to change our suppression strategy? Now, you know, the facts change all the time. Vaccination levels, you know, if we get to 90%, then, you know, maybe we do move to a more open approach. And I thought that we were going to essentially be moving in lockstep with the Australians. And once they were vaccinated, then we can both open up. Uh, But this changes the equation a bit, and I shall see how it goes. Hey, Max, it's been fantastic to have you in here. I really appreciate your um, your time and uh, insight and expertise. I've been talking with Max Rashbrook, who is a senior associate at the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies at Victoria University, an independent commentator, a staff columnist, a regular commentator on the political economy Welfare reform and inequality. It's been fantastic to have you in the studio, and we we look forward to having you back again in a month or so's time as one of the group of people um, who do a hoon with me uh, about the week's events and uh, look around the world at what we think is interesting, basically, geek out on the (laughs) political economy. It's great fun, and uh, really appreciate you coming in. and uh, I hope you all have a great weekend. I am Bernard Hickey. That was the week that was for the weekend. Ahoon on the Kaka with Max Rashbrook.